0: missing Edmund Fitzgerald in your area. Uh, request you search an area 15 miles due west, Copper Mines Point, Ontario, and 15 miles north of Criss Point. Over. So that was the last known position of the Edmund Fitzgerald at approximately uh, 7.10 local time in Idaho.
1: Merciless is probably the best word I can think of to describe how brutal the gales of November can be in the Great Lakes. Hurricane-force winds mixed with snow, ice, and savage waves make this time of year particularly dangerous for anyone on the water. This is because when a typical gale, which is a sustained wind around 54 miles per hour, or about 87 kilometers per hour, is caused by the air pressure difference between a strong low-pressure system and a strong cold-high-pressure system, things can get hairy very fast. The greater the air pressure difference, the more ruthless the winds become, whipping up waves that crest higher than any ship bold enough to carry its cargo over the lakes. On November 10th, 1975, an unusually powerful low-pressure system billowed its way from the shores of Wisconsin and out onto the nearly freezing waters of Lake Superior. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, better known as NOAA, on that day, the air pressure dropped to 29.02, the same air pressure as a Category 1 hurricane. At the head of the storm, the southeast winds blew as it rolled towards the northwest before switching course. As this now northwesterly gale moved towards Whitefish Point, a cape off of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, it began forging huge waves that gained increasing speed and mass as this monster storm pushed the frigid waters to the east. In the heart of that hazardous, deadly place where the water met the wind and the waves and the snow, the 29 men on the Edmund Fitzgerald were fighting to stay above the water. The fate of this ship and its crew is now legendary. I was born and raised in Michigan, so this story hits a nerve for me. It does for a lot of people, and this episode is a special one. This is the most recent piece of history I have ever covered. 2020 marks the 45th year of this night, and many relatives of the crew are still alive today. It is my intention to present this information as respectfully as possible, as a tribute to the crew and an attempt to tell the story of that fateful night that so instantly became history. This is the story of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside.
0: What time was the last time that you had any cause or that you noticed you uh, had the Fitzgerald and Sonny over? <laughs> 1900, he was about like 15 miles from the high hump at Chris Point. That's when I was talking to him. He was 15 miles from the land. so Hunter said you had him uh, You had him visually and on the radar, and you lost him uh, uh, in both respects. Uh, no, I didn't have him uh, visually. I had him on radar. He was uh, exactly 10 miles ahead of us. I asked him how he was making out with his problem. Uh, He said he lost those vents and he had a lift and he said he was holding his own. Uh, The last time I talked with him, he said he was holding his own. And uh, that's the the last time i uh, lost contact after that.
1: The Edmund Fitzgerald was a Great Lakes freighter. These boats, sometimes called Lakers, are huge and are used to carry everything from grain to iron ore to the 63 commercial ports all over the Great Lakes through a 1,600 mile, roughly 2,600 kilometer navigation system that stretches from Duluth, Minnesota, all the way to Ogdensburg, New York. They are on all five lakes, those being Huron, Erie, Michigan, Superior, and Ontario, and in any given year, they carry well over 173 million tons of cargo. One 1,000-foot Great Lakes freighter can carry upwards of 70,000 tons of cargo, meaning it would take 3,000 semis to carry what one freighter can. If you live near or visit the Great Lakes, you will see these long, usually red and white, freighters criss-crossing their way over the water during the shipping season, which is usually from around the end of March through mid-January, when the winter ice begins to make transportation virtually impossible. When I was a kid, I would wait with that kind of unbearable anticipation that only a kid can feel on the shore of Lake Michigan or Huron, just hoping to get to hear the long, deep whistle of the freighters as they would sound out their horns when one ship would pass by another. (laughs) ¶¶ Today, the biggest freighters can be well over a thousand feet, or 335 meters long. When it was built in 1957, the Edmund Fitzgerald was the largest freighter to ever sail the Great Lakes. It was 729 feet long, 39 feet high, 75 feet wide, and weighed 13,632 tons when its hull was empty. This was a huge freighter, and it would remain the largest for 13 years until finally being surpassed in size by the Stuart J. Court, the first 1,000-foot freighter on the Great Lakes, which you still might be lucky enough to see out on the water today. The Great Lakes themselves are enormous. According to an article from Live Science, they contain a fifth of all the fresh water on planet Earth. They hold six quadrillion gallons of fresh water. One quadrillion is a one followed by fifteen zeros, making one quadrillion equate to one thousand trillions. The surface area of the Great Lakes covers 95,160 square miles, or 246,463 kilometers. That's bigger than the combined area of the United Kingdom. Their combined shoreline is almost half as big as the circumference of Earth, and although they are not considered seas, since they contain only fresh water, they behave like inland seas do. Rolling waves, tidal shifts, strong currents, and waves up to 25 feet or more. The lakes contain over 35,000 islands and touch both U.S. and Canadian borders in Ontario, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 10% of the U.S. population and 30% of the Canadian population lives in the Great Lakes Basin. The Great Lakes are humongous, and any ship that spends its life on their waters has to be able to take a beating. And that's how the Edmund Fitzgerald was designed. It was built by Great Lakes Engineering Works of Ecorse, Michigan and cost approximately 8.4 million US dollars to build, which when it was launched on June 8, 1958, made it the most expensive freighter ever built. The Fitzgerald was owned by Northwestern Mutual Insurance Company, which had invested in the iron and mineral industries, and was named after the company's chairman, Edmund Fitzgerald. It was built primarily to haul taconite, which is a low-grade iron ore, and spent most of the year hauling tons of it, from Minnesota's iron mines to steel mills in Detroit and Ohio. Even before the infamous night in 1975, the Fitzgerald was relatively famous on the Great Lakes. According to an article from Mental Floss, people gave it different nicknames over the years, like the Queen of the Great Lakes, the Toledo Express, the Fitz, and, unfortunately, the Titanic of the Great Lakes, a name that would later become eerily prophetic. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald was not a worldwide phenomenon. It's such a big part of Michigan history and lore that I had just assumed everyone knew about it. So this might be the first time you've heard of the Fitzgerald, or you may know it from Gordon Lightfoot's famous song he wrote about it in 1976. That song is called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and it is one of the most haunting and remarkable folk songs to come out of the 1970s. I actually asked the music publishing company that owns the rights if I could play the song for you on this episode, but the fee for purchasing the rights to play it was well above my budget, so unfortunately I can't share it with you here, but I do recommend that you check it out. The song itself gets a couple of the historical facts wrong. For example, the song has the Fitzgerald headed for Cleveland, but we know it was actually headed for Detroit. Lightfoot has amended the lyrics over the years, and he considers it to be his greatest work. And it really is one of my favorite all-time songs, so be sure to look it up if you're interested. After learning the history of the freighter's fateful night, it only makes the song even more evocative. The day before that night was November 9th, 1975, and on that day, the Edmund Fitzgerald was loaded with 26,116 tons of taconite pellets made of processed iron ore that had been heated down into marble-sized balls. It would be traveling from Superior, Wisconsin to Zug Island at the southern city limits of Detroit, Michigan. A track that in fair weather would have been an easy one for this queen of the Great Lakes. The Fitzgerald had a crew of 29, including Captain Ernest Michael McSorley. Born in 1912 in Ontario, Canada, 63-year-old McSorley had over 40 years of experience as a mariner, had commanded nine other vessels before taking command of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and, according to all accounts I could find, was an incredibly skilled and able captain. The Edmund Fitzgerald was joined by another ship for the voyage, the Arthur M. Anderson, another lake freighter, which was captained by Bernie Cooper, a man with 35 years of maritime experience. The Anderson was smaller and slower than the Fitzgerald and would lag behind the faster ship at a distance of around 15 miles or 24 kilometers, though the two ships would remain in close radio contact. Captain McSorley and Captain Anderson both knew that a storm was building, which was not unusual for November. On the 9th, gale warnings had been issued by the National Weather Service And the two captains decided to take the northerly route across Lake Superior, believing they would be protected from the storm by the rocky highlands of the Canadian shore. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, both ships were underway. They made progress throughout the night, while the weather grew progressively worse. By the morning of the 10th, the gale warning had been upgraded to a storm warning, and both freighters found themselves in winds of 50 knots, That's about 58 miles per hour, or 92 kilometers per hour. The waves were rolling at a steady 12 to 16 feet, but though these conditions were rough, both captains had experienced waters like this before. But as the day wore on, the conditions grew increasingly worse. Snow began falling, and the frigid, rising spray from the growing waves made visibility extremely poor. Captain Cooper was watching the Fitzgerald from the pilot house of the Anderson. As the two freighters passed by Caribou Island, about 5 kilometers north of the US Canadian border, Captain Cooper could see the beacon from the island's lighthouse through the falling snow, and he could see the Fitzgerald passing by it about 17 miles or 27 kilometers ahead of him on his radar set. And it looked like the Fitzgerald was passing dangerously close to Caribou Island. He watched the Fitzgerald pass directly over the six Fathom Shoal on the northern side of the island. It's been speculated that while passing over the shoal, the Fitzgerald had taken some damage. Captain McSorley radioed Captain Cooper from the Fitzgerald and said over the radio, quote, Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay behind me till I get to Whitefish? Unquote. This meant that the Fitzgerald was slowing its speed so the Anderson could catch up. It also meant that the Fitzgerald had sustained some damage and that it was sailing with a list or was leaning into the water further on its side at a tilt, throwing off its equilibrium. Captain Cooper asked the Fitzgerald if its pumps that were used to pump water out of the hull were being used. McSorley replied, yes, both of them. So the Fitzgerald was taking on water at this point, too. Though the two ships remained in radio contact for the next few hours, most of that communication was navigational. Both radars on the Fitzgerald had failed, and it had to rely on the Anderson for direction. This was going to be done completely by radar as the snow was falling so heavily now that the crew on the Anderson could no longer see the Fitzgerald. But the radar on the Anderson began to malfunction as well, going in and out intermittently because the waves were now so high that they were interfering with the radar reflection. The storm was raging now. The snow and the waves that, according to Captain Cooper, were now cresting at 35 feet were making it increasingly difficult to see the Fitzgerald. These rogue waves were made worse by the wind, which was recorded on the Anderson at 86 miles per hour, or 139 miles per hour. These gusts were slamming into both ships, along with waves that easily washed over their decks. Because its radars were broken and visibility was near zero, the Fitzgerald was going through all of this blind. The U.S. Coast Guard broadcasted that all ships needed to seek safe anchorage. The Anderson was trying to help navigate the Fitzgerald toward Whitefish Bay, hoping the bay would offer both ships some relief from the wind and rough waters. Captain McSorley couldn't pick up the Whitefish Point radio beacon, something that would have helped the ship navigate. So he radioed the Coast Guard on channel 16, the emergency channel, to ask if the Whitefish Point lighthouse and the navigation beacon were working. The Coast Guard replied that they believed neither were working. Captain McSorley then radioed for any other ships in the area to report the state of the navigational instruments at Whitefish. The Avifors, another ship in the vicinity, answered. The Avifors reported that it could see the light from the lighthouse at Whitefish Bay, but there was still no radio beacon. The Avafors then radioed to the Fitzgerald and said, quote, The wind is really howling down here. What are the conditions where you are? Unquote. On the other end of the radio, the Avafors later reported that it heard Captain McSorley shouting to someone from the other end of the line that no one was to be let out on deck. The Avafors then said, quote, What was that, Fitzgerald? Unclear. Over. The Fitzgerald replied, I have a bad list, lost both radars, and am taking heavy seas over the deck, one of the worst seas I've ever been in. The Avifors replied, If I'm correct, you have two radars. The Fitzgerald replied, Both are gone. It was now 6.55pm, and back on the Anderson, the crew inside the pilot house felt the ship lurch, violently. When they looked up, they saw a huge rogue wave engulf their entire ship, from astern. The wave was so massive that it drove the bow of the Anderson down into the water. After that, a second wave, just as large, hit them a second time. The Anderson somehow managed to stay afloat and the freighter shook off the water, according to Captain Cooper, like a big dog. But both of these waves that had just smashed into the Anderson were now heading straight for the Fitzgerald. Morgan Clark, the first mate of the Anderson, had been busy watching the Fitzgerald on the radar set, which was still going in and out, calculating its distance from some of the other vessels near Whitefish Point to help the Fitzgerald avoid colliding with any other ships in the darkness. At the end of the transmission, Clark asked, quote, By the way, Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problems? The Fitzgerald replied, quote, We are holding our own. Shortly after this, the radar signal showing the Fitzgerald was lost again. Only this time, it never reappeared. Concerned, Clark radioed the Fitzgerald again at 7.22pm. The words he had heard over the last radio transmission, We are holding our own, were the last words anyone would ever hear from the Edmund Fitzgerald.
0: The thing about it was, we come up there and we called, uh, we called the Fitzgerald to check on him and see how he was doing. And uh, the last contract we had with him, he said, well, he was going along fine and holding his own and no problems. And then, you know, well, he kind of relaxed a little bit, you know, and said uh, he was in the sea return. And, and then when we we couldn't see his lights, we figured we should be catching him a little bit, because he checked down and then he just wasn't there. Roger, sir, uh, we've been in contact with Station Grand Marais. Uh, they report that uh, they've heard nothing of the end of Fitzgerald. Over.
1: When the Fitzgerald failed to answer his call, Captain Cooper back on the Anderson began contacting other ships in the area, asking if anyone had seen the Fitzgerald. He was hopeful that perhaps the other ship had managed to round Whitefish Point and was waiting out the storm in the shelter of the bay. When no other ship had reported any sightings and the Anderson was unable to spot the Fitzgerald's lights through the storm, Captain Cooper called the Coast Guard to report his concerns. At the time, the Coast Guard was already busy trying to locate a small 16-foot boat that was overdue, so the Edmund Fitzgerald would have to wait. As the long minutes dragged on, Captain Cooper grew increasingly overcome with apprehension. At 8 p.m., he called the Coast Guard again and firmly expressed his concern for the missing ship. The Coast Guard then initiated a search for the Fitzgerald. Shortly after that last call, the Anderson safely pulled into the harbor of Whitefish Bay. The crew was incredibly relieved at having survived the worst storm they had ever seen. But Captain Cooper could not shake the feeling that something terrible had happened to the Edmund Fitzgerald. By now, it was 9 p.m., and the Coast Guard called Captain Cooper back. They were calling with news that the captain did not want to hear. The storm was so bad and the Coast Guard already so busy that no other vessels could be recruited to search for the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Coast Guard had no available ships to send out for rescue, and they were now asking that Captain Cooper leave the safety of Whitefish Bay and head back into the storm to conduct the search for the Fitzgerald. Here is the audio of that conversation. Keep in mind, it's a 45-year-old radio transmission, so I've edited it a bit for clarity and speed. This is Captain Cooper from the Anderson talking to the Coast Guard the night the Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared. Yeah, this is so we have
0: it. Uh, do you think there's any possibility that you could uh, come out and go back there and, uh, and do any searching? I, I don't know, uh, 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 <laughs> the sea out there is tremendously large, and uh, if you want me to, I can, but I, I'm, I'm not going to be making any time, I'll be lucky to make two or three miles an hour going out back out that way. Uh, this is the Super Control, uh, uh, Roger. Well, you're, you have to make the decision as to uh, whether you would be uh, uh, happy or not, uh, but get to the scene, uh, we're going to try to uh, contact those saltwater vessels and see if they can't possibly uh, 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 come about and come back also. But uh, uh, I understand you all loaded, is that right? The radar here 10 minutes ago, and they were right up to that, to that area. Uh, this is to control. After, uh, uh, we will uh, contact them and see if we can't get them to the in the area also. We're trying to get a uh, Coast Guard aircraft uh, launch to uh, come up to the area, but uh, I would say things, uh, things look pretty bad, like uh, she, she may have split uh, the seams like the uh, morale did a few years back, all right? This is just what I'm wondering, because uh, uh, the mate come up here, and we it off in the last known position that we had on them was 14 miles west of Coppermine Point, and uh, now we had been told, we just talked to them, uh, you know, it, uh, We kind of never thought anything about it, but we saw no, there should have been ring with lights on and flashing, and uh, the visibility was good. Uh, this is the Super Control right you, and you are definitely sure that you was ahead of you, is that correct? Uh, that is sure, yes, and uh, the wind was west-northwest out there, steady 55, gusting to 70. Uh, Super Control Line, right well, uh, again, uh, you, know, you think uh, you could come out and go back and uh, take a look in the area, hold on. I'll, I'll go back and take a look, but, uh, God, I'm afraid that I'm going to take a hell of a beating out there on it, uh, and, uh if, uh, if they could get a search, if they could get a chopper over there, they'd be blown over toward Mine Point. And I don't know how far in there I could get. I'm but I'll, I'll turn around and give it a whirl, but, uh, God, I don't know, I'll give it a try. Uh, this is pre-control, uh, a larger, uh, this that would be good if you could, uh, if you could, uh, turn around and head out that way, and we're going to try to get it running out of those, uh, that can possibly uh, get underway and, and proceed to that area. Over. Yeah, do you realize what the conditions are out there? Do you realize what the conditions are out there, don't you? Uh, it's control, uh, affirmative, uh, from, from what you report by, I can uh, appreciate the conditions. Again, though I, I have to leave that decision up to you as to whether you'll be uh, hazarding your vessel or not, uh, if you think you can uh, safely uh, go back into the area, I would request that you do so, but it, I have to leave that decision up to you, over. I'll go on, and take a look, but uh, uh, I know when I was uh, about 15 miles above Whiteface, uh, we took a seat right over the top of the hatch crane up here, and that's eight feet up in the water too, so I don't know whether I can do it or not. I'll give it a try, but that's all I can do. True control, Roger. Uh, keep me posted on your progress, and we'll be uh, back in touch with you, over. Uh-huh. Okay. Be 40 to Okay.
1: You can hear Captain Cooper's apprehension about being asked to go back into one of the worst seas he had ever faced to find a ship that the Coast Guard had just said had most likely split apart at the seams like the Morrell had nine years before. The Daniel J. Morrell was another Great Lakes freighter that had tragically sunk during another brutal November storm, this one on Lake Huron in November of 1966. After being pounded for hours by hurricane-force winds and waves 30 feet high, the ship literally began to break apart. With all alarms sounding, the 29 crew members scrambled for the lifeboats in the darkness as the ship broke into. One man, Dennis Hale, was a 26-year-old watchman from Ohio. Around 2 a.m., he was jolted awake by several loud bangs. before hearing the alarms go off. He was wearing only what he had slept in, a pair of boxer shorts. Before he ran out on deck, he grabbed a peacoat and a life jacket, then sloshed his way barefoot across the flooded deck of the ship. The water that night was frigid, and Hale, along with several shipmates, was able to make it to one of the life rafts and pitch it into the water. The men in the lifeboat watched as their ship sank, along with the rest of the crew, to the bottom of Lake Huron. The Morell had 29 crew members, just like the Fitzgerald. Four of them had made it to the life raft. They began firing emergency flares, but no one saw them. Throughout the night, the four men in the raft talked about their chances of seeing home again, about seeing their families and making it home in time for Christmas. Two of them were dead by the time the sun rose. The storm wouldn't stop, and the small raft was tossed over the water, soaking the men inside, battering them with wind and frigid water. The air temperature was at freezing, and their bodies were slowly being encased in a layer of ice. At sunrise, two men out of twenty-nine were left, Hale and a man named Charles Fossbender, the ship's wheelsman known as Fuzzy to his crewmates. The two of them talked again of home, and Fossbender reassured Hale that their raft would bottom out on the beach at any moment. But he died too. Hale, the last man alive, was trapped on the life raft among the frozen bodies of his crewmates for another 24 hours. Watching the ice forming on his peacoat, he slipped in and out of consciousness. He remembered cursing with anger while staring at one of the other men covered in ice, shaking his fist at the sky and asking why he was being made to suffer so much. He prayed too and played mind games to keep himself alert, moving his limbs to try and stave off frostbite. Then he began to hallucinate There is something that happens occasionally to individuals in extreme times of crisis, something that has been called the third man factor, when a person who is experiencing a life or death situation sees some sort of being appear that intervenes at a critical moment to give support, comfort, or aid of some kind. Some people believe these are spiritual experiences, others believe they are merely psychological reactions, the result of human brains under extreme stress coping with biochemical reactions or perhaps a misfiring of brain activity. Whatever the reason, Dennis Hale had one of these experiences. He claimed he saw many things, including the Morrell and some of the crew members that had died in the raft hours before. He said a visitor, A ghost, maybe an angel. Even years later, he said he didn't know what it was. But it was a strange-looking man that told him, quote, Stop eating the ice off your peacoat. You'll lower your body temperature and die. This turned out to be good advice. After a total of 38 hours in the life raft, Dennis Hale was rescued. He was the sole survivor of the wreck. 28 out of 29 people had died. He suffered severe frostbite to his feet, vascular damage to his lower legs, he had a gash under his chin that required stitches, and had lost 25 pounds over 11 kilos. He survived because he was heavier than his crewmates, because since he was in boxer shorts he was not bogged down by frozen pants, because the jacket he had put on over his life preserver had helped to insulate his heart and lungs, and because he didn't eat the ice off of his peacoat. The tragedy of the morel was known to everyone who worked on the Great Lakes. In 1975, the sinking of the morel was a recent history, and one fresh in the mind of Captain Cooper, who was now being asked to take his ship, risk his life and the lives of his crew to go back out there and look for the Edmund Fitzgerald, because the Coast Guard wasn't coming. It was a heavy decision, and I can imagine wasn't one that any captain would want to have to make. If he went looking for the Fitzgerald, he and his crew could end up at the bottom of Lake Superior. If he didn't go, he would spend a lifetime wondering what would have happened if he had. So Captain Cooper told his crew to get ready, because they were going out, back into the storm, to look for the Edmund Fitzgerald. The Coast Guard made calls to all available ships in the bay, but all were reluctant to go search. No one wanted to go back out there.
0: Have you found the information uh, concerning Edmund Fitzgerald? Uh, yes, we have. Roger, sir. Uh, would there be any way possible that you uh, would be able to get underway and search for survivors? I'll have to notify the captain and call you back. All right. they'll so be standing by. All right.
1: It was just too dangerous.
0: I'd get out there with a without a gyro and getting absolute uh, course lines, and that'd uh, be in jeopardy uh, with, with my crew. The situation with the gyro that I have here, I have problems, so constantly I don't want to jeopardize the vessel with my crew.
1: The Anderson became the lead vessel in the search. Seven other ships seeking refuge in Whitefish Bay were asked to join the search. Only one agreed to help, the William Clay Ford, one that had been in radio contact with the Fitzgerald earlier that day. The waves were still rolling on high swells, and the Anderson began to spot debris. Gas tanks for the stoves, life preservers, oars, canisters, all from the Fitzgerald were scattered over the water. But there were no bodies, no ship, no survivors. The Fitzgerald was gone. The Anderson saw both of the ship's lifeboats on the water, but there was no one in them. At 10 p.m., the Coast Guard launched a fixed-wing HU-16 aircraft to search the waters from above. They dispatched two cutters used to break ice on the lakes, the Naugatuck and the Woodrush. The Naugatuck didn't arrive until 12.45 p.m. the next day, November 11th, the Woodrush three days after that, on the 14th. An extensive search was conducted through the 14th. Using side-scan sonar, the Coast Guard found the area where they believed the Fitzgerald went down, but no wreckage of the Fitzgerald other than the debris was found. The next year, in May of 1976, the Woodrush returned to the scene to conduct its third sonar scan survey. They returned to what the Coast Guard believed was likely the wreckage of the Fitzgerald. The U.S. Navy brought in its Curve 3, a cable-controlled underwater recovery vehicle, and launched it into the water. 535 feet down, at the bottom of Lake Superior, the Curve 3 took 43,000 feet of videotape and 900 photographs. In the footage, on the stern of the wreckage they found were clearly seen the words, Edmund Fitzgerald. The coordinates of the wreck had officially been determined. The Edmund Fitzgerald had gone down only 17 miles, 27 kilometers, from the safety of Whitefish Bay. The reasons for the sinking are still hotly debated. In 1977, the Coast Guard released its official report. While the report states that the cause of the sinking cannot be completely determined, it says, quote, The most probable cause of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald was the loss of buoyancy and stability resulting from massive flooding of the cargo hold. The flooding of the cargo hold took place through ineffective hatch closures as boarding seas rolled along the spar deck. This meant the Coast Guard believed the wreck was caused because of human error, specifically because the crew responsible for properly closing the hatch covers didn't properly secure them. This conclusion has drawn many detractors over the years, and almost immediately after this report came out, the Lake Carriers Association, the oldest active trade association in the U.S., issued a letter to the National Transportation Safety Board stating they believe the wreck occurred because of the damage the Fitzgerald took when it passed over an uncharted shoal at the Six-Fathom Shoal area, as was witnessed by Captain Cooper on board the Anderson. Captain Cooper, who passed away in 1993 at the age of 74, maintained for the rest of his life that he believed the Edmund Fitzgerald bottomed out on that shoal, taking damage that would cripple the ship later in the storm, perhaps leading to a stress fracture. If the Fitzgerald had been sinking since the Shoal, it would have stood no chance after being hit with the huge waves described by Captain Cooper as the largest he had ever experienced. On board the Anderson, a ship that was intact, there were at times 12 feet of water on deck from the monster waves that had smashed onto the decks of the freighters. There was no distress call sent out from the Fitzgerald, so the sinking was most likely sudden. And disastrous. In his last ever interview, Captain Cooper said he believed that Captain McSorley thought the Fitzgerald was going to make it to Whitefish Bay, and when the ship began to sank, the crew may have believed it was just another rogue wave, thinking the freighter would rise back up and out of the water. If this was true, they may have already gone under before the crew even knew what had happened. This, although I believe it's a much more likely explanation than human error and improper latches, is only one of several theories about the wreck. Another theory involves a phenomenon called the Three Sisters. This is a Great Lakes phenomenon, described as the combination of two large waves crashing over the deck of a ship while a third wave, even larger, slams down on the deck again before the ship can recover itself from the inundation of the first two. Captain Cooper described two 35-foot waves that had hit the Anderson, so if these waves went on to hit the Fitzgerald, which was then hit by a third, it could account for the capsizing. There was a wave of successive dives to the wreckage over the years to try and determine exactly what happened. The first was in 1976, when the wreckage was officially identified. In 1980, Jean-Michel Cousteau, the son of Jacques Cousteau, led an expedition using a small submarine. In 1989, a remote vehicle expedition was conducted as a collaboration between NOAA, the National Geographic Society, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, the U.S. Army Corps, and the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. No one from any of these expeditions was able to determine an official cause of the wreck. In 1994, a series of seven dives were led by businessman Frederick Shannon. Although these dives were unable to find any conclusive evidence of the wreck's cause, the video footage was the clearest ever obtained, and it was the only expedition that obtained footage of a body. They reportedly found one man in a life vest next to the wreckage of the ship, but the identification of the remains or their retrieval were impossible. A memorial plaque was made and placed in the wreckage near the ship's pilot house. Another expedition in 1994 was led by Canadian explorer Dr. Joseph McInnes. He was joined by the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. By the way, if you're ever near the Whitefish Point Light Station in Michigan, definitely go check out the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. A lot of the information I found for this episode was from either their website or through sources I found through their website. So even if you can't make it to Michigan, definitely check out their website. They have an entire section just on the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I'll have a link to that and all of my other sources in the show notes. The second 1994 expedition was also unable to determine a concrete cause of sinking, and to this day, it remains a mystery. In November of 1994, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, or GLSHS, was invited to the Mariner's Church in Detroit for a meeting with the surviving family members of the lost crew. The families were concerned with how many dives were being done and how many visitors the resting place of their loved ones were getting. The loss of the Fitzgerald crew, which was now famous in the 90s 20 years after the sinking, was incredibly painful for the surviving families, and most of them did not want the site to continue to be disturbed. The families were looking for a way to bring closure to their feelings of loss, and the discussion in Detroit led to the suggestion that something significant from the wreck should be recovered to serve as memorial for all the lives lost. The ship's bell, which was still in the pilot house, was unanimously selected. It was also suggested that in its place, a replica bell, with the names of all the lost crew, be placed in the wreck as a permanent memorial marker. The GLSHS, wanting to help bring closure to these families, immediately got to work for the bell recovery. This was not easy. The ship had sunk over the Canadian border, and permission had to be granted from the Canadian government. Ships had to be commissioned, volunteers found, as well as financial backers. The Sony Corporation loaned equipment. National Geographic sent its most qualified underwater photographer, Emery Christophe. The Canadian government and the Shipwreck Society sent ships. David Dahlquist of Duluth took the crew's family members to the wreckage for the site's bell retrieval on his private yacht, and Four Winds donated two smaller crafts. The Chippewa tribe of Sault Ste. Marie backed the expedition by co-signing a $250,000 loan for the GLSHS. A lot of people cared enough about the Edmund Fitzgerald to make this bell retrieval happen. Divers used a special cutting torch to separate the bell from the roof of the pilot house, and on July 4th, 1995, the 200 pound, 91 kilo bell from the Edmund Fitzgerald broke the surface of the water and saw fresh air for the first time in 20 years. A wreath was placed on the water, and the family members gathered there, said their goodbyes, and waited until the replica bell was placed on the pilot house before going home and finding some much-needed closure after 20 years of grief. The ship's bell was presented to family members during a ceremony called Call to the Last Watch, as the bell was tolled 30 times, once for each man lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald, and once for the estimated 30,000 lives lost on the Great Lakes. You can visit the bell at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum today. Every year, on November 10th, the bell is brought out. Bagpipes play the song Amazing Grace, and the bell rings out 30 times for every man lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Michael Armagost, Third Mate Frederick Beecher, Porter. Thomas Benston, Euler. Edward Binden, First Assistant Engineer. Thomas Borgeson, Maintenance Man. Oliver Champeau Third Assistant Engineer. Nolan Church, Porter. Ransom Cundy, Watchman. Thomas Edwards, Second Assistant Engineer. Russell Haxel, second assistant engineer. George Hull, chief engineer. Bruce Hudson, deckhand. Alan Kalman, second cook. Gordon McClellan, wiper. Joseph Mazes, special maintenance man. John McCarthy, first mate. Eugene O'Brien, wheelsman. Carl Peckle, Watchman. John Poviak, Wheelsman. James Pratt, Second Mate. Robert Rafferty, Steward and Cook. Paul Ripa, Deckhand. John Simmons, Wheelsman. William Spengler, Watchman. Mark Thomas, Deckhand. Ralph Walton, Euler, David Weiss, Cadet, Blaine Wilhelm, Euler, Ernest McSorley, Captain, the 30,000 lost. May all of you rest in peace. That brings this episode on the Edmund Fitzgerald to an end. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope I did the story and the crew and their families justice with this episode. I appreciate you taking the time to hear this story. It's one that means so much to so many. I've been your host, Kristen Robine-Tripstra, and until we meet again, dear wandering stars of podcast land, go make some history.